Man, last week I had to go home sick, um, go home early sick, and I'll tell you, it is not the same uh, having to watch uh, from home. So it's good to be back, it's good to be healthy again, and so I'm excited to be here this morning. Well, 4th of July is coming in just two days, and I hope to see you at our annual picnic that we're going to have here. Water slide, food, fellowship, uh, maybe some Texas run game. Uh, it's we an amazing time that we're going to have, fun with your church family. This celebration's purpose, though, is not about barbecues, parades, fireworks, as surprisingly that I found out a lot of people in this country actually think. It's just another party holiday is how it seemed. They couldn't tell you the reason why we have Fourth of July in the first place. See, the United States of America celebrates Fourth of July, and we know it as Independence Day. The celebration It goes all the way back from the 18th century and the American Revolution, but it's been a federal holiday since 1941. See, on July 2nd, 1776, the Contentional Congress voted in favor of independence, and two days later, on the 4th, delegates from the 13 colonies adopted what we call the Declaration of Independence, a historic document drafted by Thomas Jefferson. From 1776 to the present day, 4th of July has been celebrated as the birth of American independence from Britain. We are a free country because of this. And it led to the country that we are today. And I'm sure most of everyone in here today, if, if not, can I can say all everyone, we are grateful to be a part of a free country. See, there are many throughout this whole world that do not have anywhere near the freedoms that we enjoy today. Men, women continuously have given their lives just for us to have it and to maintain it. I am grateful. I love my country. I am proud to be an American. And I won't apologize for that. See, as a Christian, though, I have an even greater freedom to celebrate and one I can celebrate daily. See, in Christ, there is the best freedom that there is to offer. And without him, the freedom that you would experience being an American is the best that you're going to get it. Today, we're going to be in the book of Romans to explore some of that freedom. The title of this message is A Free Servant. You know, based off that word, it would seem like an oxymoronic statement, but stay tuned in the message and you'll see what we mean by it. See, Romans, in my view, should be one of the first books a new Christian should read along with the book of John. It is full of truths about Jesus and what accompanies our salvation. I truly don't understand how you can open the book of Romans, read it from cover to cover, and conclude anything else but that salvation is eternal and exclusively by grace, through faith, no works. See, to get a better understanding of Romans as a whole and what brought in this letter, I want to talk about that a little bit. This letter is about dealing with a controversy that were set between the Jewish and Gentile believers. Specifically, the Jewish believers would look down on the Gentiles as if they were some kind of special Christian. Oh, we're the Jews. We're, the one, we're God's patriarchs. We're some kind of special bee. And Paul throughout Romans demonstrates that all, both Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin and under condemnation because all have sinned. And Jesus has died for all. The gospel and salvation is offered to all people. There's no respect of persons with God, meaning there's no favoritism. And because of these truths, because of there's, no, there's no place for prejudice over one's ethnic culture or background, and especially here at Lighthouse, there is no place for racism or any ethnic discrimination here. See, the gospel and salvation are certainly themes in the book of Romans, but that's not exclusively what the letter is brought on about. I would urge you to reread the book of Romans with that understanding in mind what Romans is dealing with, and it's all going to come together smoothly, I guarantee you. Let's all read our text today, this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. It says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, 
that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death have no, hath no more dominion over him. For in he that dieth, he died unto sin once, but in he that liveth, he liveth unto God. Our Heavenly Father, we are so bountifully blessed, Lord, to be here this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful truths and a book like the book of Romans, Lord, that just gives us that strength and gives us that assurance and confidence in what we believe, Lord, and why we believe it here. So be with us the rest of this morning and help us to be attentive and help us, you know, just enjoy the wonderful freedoms that you continuously give us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So one, how our freedom was accomplished. Beginning, beginning back in verse 1, he said, this is a rhetorical question, and he gives that answer immediately. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So he brings on that first phrase, what shall we say then? See, these kind of words would recall something that has been previously stated. So we backtrack to the previous chapter, uh, just a couple of verses. This is where he picks off from, from Romans 5. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but when sin, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So this idea that God's grace is so powerful, why not just sin and just go off and do whatever you want? It makes his grace look better after all. See, sin more to experience more of God's grace. Obviously, this is an absurd thought. And this is the exact passage I'm reminded of anytime someone brings up an accusation against this biblical teaching of eternal security. Meaning, once you are saved, once you have put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, your salvation is secured in Christ, never to go back into condemnation. It cannot be taken away, and it cannot be lost. The accusations almost every single time when they hear that position, so I can just sin all I want and do whatever I want, and I won't go to hell? The answer may surprise you. It's yes. Yes, you can do what you want. Now I ask, what do you want? What do you want to do? Why does a redeemed, born-again child of God want to live rebelliously against a loving, gracious, kind, merciful God? The thought doesn't even occur to me. When someone brings that accusation up, what they tell me is that they don't understand how salvation works in the first place. See, God's grace has never been this, here you go, you now have a license to sin. It's a license and enablement to do righteousness, to do what's right, to serve him, to live from him. See, my God's grace that saved me, it is a grace that changes people. It is a grace that is real. It's not this idea, oh, here you go, do what you want, go sin all you want. See, my nature has been changed. The things that I wanted in the past are not what I want anymore. It's a real grace. Because salvation is no doubt eternal. It wouldn't be eternal, after all, if it could be removed. See, if your salvation could truly be lost, who would be have to the one to cancel the contract? God has to be the one to undo all of these things that happen to you at salvation. This isn't some later Christian philosophy that developed or just a way to make us feel better when we do sin against God. See, the scripture evidence for this is plenty. Just, I'm going to give you just John 10, for example. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Trust me, your salvation is absolutely secured. Shall we continue? Paul's response, God forbid, in the Greek, me genoito, which is a strong form from the Greek to object to something, meaning absolutely not. It's absurd. See, you simply cannot. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Death is a word that means separation. This may seem to appear that Christians don't sin anymore, and the answer to that is yes and no. Stay tuned to what I mean by that. See, the Christian died to or separated from sin's capacity is principle at salvation. You're no longer a sinner. But sin capacity is still here in our flesh. See, our sin was dealt with by Jesus on the cross, but we are still in the flesh. There is an old man, and there is a new man. The new man is not a sinner. The new man cannot be seen is not a sinner. The new man that cannot be seen. See, in the verses to come, we'll see more about this one here. But what accomplishes what our baptism is what it illustrates. Now, understand that word illustrate. Verse 3 through 5. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. And if you don't understand these three verses here as illustrations, you're going to come up with some far-out conclusions. The first formal command that we are given as Christians is to be what? Be baptized. It is the first formal command we have. Acts 2.41 says this, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day that were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 47 through 48 in Acts. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, and which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we are. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. See, here at Lighthouse, we teach from Scripture that baptism is done only for someone who is a believer with the proper element, water, method by immersion and through the proper authority, and that is by the church. So you are publicly displaying that you have indeed trusted Christ. I'm saved. I know where I am. I know where I'm going to be. And I know I'm going to be in heaven. See, the old you has been buried and you've been raised to walk in new life. It also connects you to the body, church membership. See, some faiths have taught from what you see in Romans 6, 3 through 5, is that when you're getting baptized, it's what's literally taking place. Hence, you have to get baptized in order to get saved. Yet, this leads you to contradictions in Scripture. Not of works of righteousness in which we have none. Is baptism a work of righteousness? It absolutely is. See, baptism is an illustration of what already took. Hence the language that like. You must believe first. Acts chapter 8, along with this one, is an example. Only someone who is a believer is the proper candidate for a baptism. This is in Acts chapter, 30, Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto certain water. And the eunuch said, this is the, the um, Ethiopian eunuch, See, here is water. What doeth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. See, another position that has arrived from Romans 6 is this idea of spirit baptism. 
even taught by many who even hold the baptist, that the baptist name, that when we get saved, that we are hence spiritually baptized. Now that may say, sound good and all at first, but it leads you to problems. First one, it leads you to universal church, and that is not what the Bible shows to be called spirit. What's what's called spirit baptism. By the way, you are going to get some theology today, but stay with me. We're going to look at what spirit baptism actually is in Scripture. We're going to look first at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. See, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, and wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice it's with the Holy Ghost that they're going to be baptized. You first need to know what the Spirit is doing and what it's not. The Spirit is not the one who baptizes. Jesus is the one who's going to do the baptizing with the Spirit as the element. Prior to this and being assembled, Jesus took his 11 disciples to the same mountain where he appointed them as apostles and commissions them. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus spake and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Here in Matthew 28, here he gives his church the power. This comes from a Greek word, exousia, which means the authority. The authority I have now given to you, to the church, to teach, to take the gospel into all the world, to baptize, and to disciple them. And before this, on the same night that the tomb was found empty, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit already. John chapter 20, verse 21 through 22 says this, Then said Jesus to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, What? Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This was before Pentecost. So these men already had the Holy Spirit received. And now that they've received the Spirit, they've received the authority to take to the gospel unto all the world. Acts chapter 1 handles what's called the dunamis, the power. They are promised to receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon them after they're immersed in it. Acts chapter 1, 8 says this, But ye shall receive power. That's dunamis, not the exousia. After that, the Holy Ghost is upon you, and ye shall come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now remember, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his church. He's talking to the elders of the first church. Then in Acts chapter 2, we see when what we can call spirit baptism actually happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled with all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like a fire, and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues. That word means languages. Every man heard in his own language. It's not some kind of angelic language that's not understood as the Spirit gave them utterance or enablement. This is when they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So if you were to use that term, that's what, it's right here. I see no need for Jesus to baptize his church again in the Spirit. Every real church today is a descendant from this very one here in Jerusalem. Therefore, the idea of Spirit baptism is not something that happens today. We have the authority to take the gospel into this world. We also have the dunamis or the ability to get it done. I want to give you one more verse in relation to that. There's one more verse that often gets pushed for this position of spirit baptism, how the spirit baptizes you when you're saved. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, they have, made, they have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, this verse may seem to settle it at first glance. But if you look at 10 verses before, I want you to pay very close attention to the language usage. 
1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaketh, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but what? But by the Holy Ghost. It is the same language, by the Holy Ghost, by the Spirit, are we baptized. It is by the influence. The Spirit is what influences us to be baptized into one body, not the agent in which we are baptized. See, one body as well is not a reference to a universal church. It's using it to illustrate how a church is one body with many members. A church like ours, for example, are we just one here? Yes, we are one. But I see a lot of you out here. We are one body, but we are made up of many members. The hand, the head, which is Jesus, the head of the church, the feet, the hand. Functionally, if we're talking about a universal church, the illustration falls completely apart. There's no such thing as a universal church. It is a local, visible, called out assembly of God. And if you're looking at what that term for general, what about all Christians in the entire world? Aren't we all the church? The answer is the family of God is what the scripture uses. Family of God is the universal general Christians. Ephesians 3, 14 through 15 says this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the what? The whole family in heaven and earth is named. Did you learn something new today? It's a lot to handle. Back to Romans now. We're going to read verses 3 through 5 again. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also you should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted into the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. See, many of you here were baptized at Lighthouse Baptist Church. The Holy Spirit is what influenced you to do it. We confirmed your confession of faith. We then, you were immersed under the water by the authority of Lighthouse Baptist Church. And when you came up out of that water, what were you? You were a member. Did you get saved? No, because that was already dealt with a long time ago, long before that. When you came up as a member of the church, that's when you were baptized. This is an illustration of what already took place on the inside. You are dead to sin, and like as Christ was raised, you should walk in the new life. We identified with our Savior. You represented how that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. The same was with you. And that's where we come with the old versus the new. Our old man was crucified with Christ. Verse 6 through 8. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. See, the crucifixion of the old man is something that God did in us. None of us here are the ones that nailed that old man to the cross. It was accomplished by Christ alone. See, the old man is that self that is patterned after Adam. That part of us deeply ingrained in rebellion against God and his commands. It's the old you if you know, if you don't know Jesus. It's the old you as well if you do know him. The law is unable to deal with that old man. And Paul demonstrates that all throughout, the Rome, all throughout Romans. Because it only tells the old man what the righteous standard of God is. See, the law tries to reform the old man. But God's grace and his system, the only way you can deal with the old man is to put it to death. He must be put to death, and for the believer, the old man dies with Christ on the cross. It is no longer who you are. And if you don't know him today, that old man is still you. Because he is dead, you have been freed from sin. But hold on. I still struggle with sin 
every day. And this morning, did we not just deal with 1 John? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us all righteousness. So what, what gives here? What's the connection? If our old man is dead, why does he seem to still take some roots and pattern our life after? The issue is what? The issue is your flesh. If you were to say, well, actually, I don't struggle with sin anymore, I would take you to 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 9, we know that one, and verse 10 going on. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. How does that make God a liar? Because he declares all men are sinners, and his word is not in us. See, the issue lies with your flesh. You still have it, and it will be a battle for the rest of of your life. Now, now the good thing about this is your spirit, the real you, the one that came alive, was born again, is the one that you're supposed to be living after. Ephesians 4.24 says this, and that ye put on the new man, which God is created in righteousness and true, what? True holiness. So remember this distinguished pattern. You have the old man and you have the new man. Which one is a sinner? The old. Is the new man, the real you, the born again you, a sinner? He is no longer. That's what we mean by yes and no, are a Christian still sinner? The new man, the new you is not a sinner. It is the one you are to be putting on daily, putting off the old man first, put on the new man. We call that replacement theology. How do I stop all of these bad habits? How do I just stop sinning? How do I stop cursing? How do I stop treating people unharshly? How do I stop? How do I do that? You start putting on the new. You start putting on righteousness. So instead of cursing, instead of bad language, you start speaking kindness. You start using a better vocabulary than all those curse words out there. Trust me, there is a way... The English language has plenty of words you can use instead of the old ways. How do, you start tra- how do you start treating people kinder? How do you stop being mean to people? You start recognizing what Christ has done for you in his kindness. The same love that Christ has shown to me, I am to show that love to someone else. And when you focus on putting on righteousness, you don't leave room for the old man to come in. Another place in Romans it says, make not provision for the flesh. You crucify, put the old man to death, you put on the new man, which is the real you. Since you died with Christ, and he is also raised, you shall live with him. Death and sin no longer have dominion over us. Verses 9 through 10. It says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in he that died, he died unto sin once. But in he that liveth, he liveth unto God. This here is where we get to enjoy our freedom. You have that choice to not live after the old. You have that choice to even not serve him. It's like, hold on, what did he just say? You have the choice to not serve God. You get that choice. You're truly set free. You'll never go back in to condemnation. John 5, 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Remember I had said your salvation is absolute secured? There's another passage that just affirms that. See, you have a God-given freedom like no one else can offer. Your freedom is called to use it for him, and we get to do that. That's why I called it a free servant. I freely get to choose to be one of God's servant. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, to believers, you have been called unto liberty. That word means freedom. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. You actually have that ability to do it. When God sets you free... You can go off and say, hey, thanks, God, I'm going to go my own way now. He gave you that choice. But the better choice 
is to use that freedom to not serve yourself, but how you can serve God, the one who purchased your freedom with his blood on the cross at Calvary. So I ask you this morning, how do you plan to use your freedom? See, God sets you free. That's what freedom essentially is. You get to do what you want. He gives you that choice. But God wants you to love him back. He wants your heart. He wants to use your hands. He wants to use your feet for his glory. And I argue, if you are a child of God, if you've been redeemed, that is where you're truly going to find your peace. That is truly where you're going to find your joy in this life. See, he purchased that about 2,000 years ago on a cross where he bore the sins of the whole world and gave his life for humanity so that humanity could be saved. But he's not going to force you into it. He is not going to force you into serving him. He's not going to force you to love him. And only if you put your trust in him, you understand what Jesus did on that cross for you. That was for your sin. That was because you could not live this life that many preachers out there try to tell you to live to go to heaven. If you've never had that moment in your life where you dealt with your sin, where you came to understand where you were between you and God, that you are a sinner, that you need a savior. Because to all those preachers out there that tell you that you just got to live it. If you would just stop, 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 and do, 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 then you might go to heaven when you die. See, Jesus came because we could not live it. He, could, he came because we couldn't set ourselves free. That bondage, the yoke, the law is what held us back. Jesus did all the work. He is the freedom giver. If you've never had that moment in your life, you ever understood the gospel, I urge you to consider it. The life that you know as an American and the American freedoms you benefit from is the best freedom that you're ever going to get. But one day, when all said and done, it's going to be over. You will come face to face with a holy God, and he is going to deal justly. See, many out there want to make their own way to God. Well, I got my own perspectives, my own beliefs, rather than man-made religion. I'll find my own path. I find my own beliefs about God. See, many out there think that way. And one day, they are going to come face-to-face with God at the great white throne. And how many are going to make it? If you read the book at the end of the book, not one of those people make it. See, John said, Jesus said in John 14, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. As for those who don't know him, many of you still live like you've never been set free before. You've allowed Satan to enact his plans and entangle and ensnare your life. Why would you want to live after someone who plans your destruction? You may not, I was like, I don't live for Satan. If you're choosing, I'm not going to live for the Lord by default, you're choosing to do what Satan wants for your life. You've decided that you know what's best for your life over what God wants. How unfortunate, how sad that many many I've met come face to face with, greatly respected, to say, what God wants is not really for me. I know, I know what Jesus did for me on the cross. I know that I'm saved. I did that a long time ago, but I don't know. Just It's not for me. What about you, though? Are you going to be different? Are you going to allow the pressures of this world to keep you away from what God wants to keep you out of church? Are you going to recognize that the pressures and the trials of this life are to grow me stronger in the Lord? Allow him to lead because you recognize what he has for you set. His plans for you are the best plans you're going to have in life. It's the best life that you can live. Not the easiest. Most likely it's going to be even harder. But walking with the Lord, there is no greater joy and thing. One day when I leave this life, I long to hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want something to give back. But guess what? You have that freedom to make that decision. 
I urge you, you get to do that decision. You get to live for God. Not, oh, I just have to live for God because I'm a Christian. You get to live for God. But like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the truth that we have in Scripture, Lord, that we have been set free. And just as in John, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. In this country, Lord, I love this country, and, it's, and I love the amazing freedoms that I do get here, Lord, but that's all going to come fall way short, Lord, of the freedom that you have to offer. And one day there is going to be an end to it. I need to, we all need to recognize where we stand before you, Lord, that if we know you, we know where our eternity is going to be. But to those who have never dealt with their sin problem, who never recognized what Jesus did for them and why, I would urge them to consider and recognize, Lord, that you can't truly set them free. They no longer have to live with the burden of sin in this life. They no longer have to live with that burden of where they're going to spend eternity because what you did on the cross was more than enough to purchase the sins, was to purchase us, Lord, because you died for the sins of the whole world. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful freedom that we have, that we're freed from sin, that we get to live unto you. You're an awesome God, Lord, and we, may we never take these things for granted and never recognize that our time, we always recognize that someday our time can be up before we ever even know it. So we look to you now and we gladly choose you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good job. Those of you who were in Bible class this morning will have noticed something. Yeah? I, I didn't confer with him about what I was going to teach today. We taught the same thing in Bible class that you just heard from the message today. Sounds to me like the Lord's wanting to tell you something. You know, it's kind of like a verily, verily, you know. You said it twice. need to pay attention. The question this morning is, are you free? Are you free? Well, you're, you're, you're an American, so you're sort of free. Pieces of that are getting chipped away daily in this country, by the way. If you haven't noticed, it's probably because you're a kid and not old enough to remember what it used to be like. Believe me, I, I remember the difference. But still, we're pretty free. Nobody, uh, nobody sat out there in front with a M16 and said you couldn't come in here and worship Jesus today. Yet, yet, in Christ, we're free. Religion says it's up to you. How you live is going to make the difference. The Word of God says how you live doesn't make a bit of difference. You say, oh, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, it's, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way because if you don't, you're believing a lie. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I was taught as a kid growing up that you got to live it or you're not going to heaven. I heard that, I heard that old bald-headed preacher, he would, I guess we didn't have air conditioning back then because he would sling sweat everywhere and scream to the top of his lungs and beat on that desk. You got to live it. And those people would walk forward and they'd get saved every week. That's what they said. Hebrews says that salvation is once for all. Once for all. Folks who believe that it depends on them do not understand salvation. 
There's not a thing you can do that's going to save you or help save you from your sins. Nothing. What can you do? What are you going to give God? What are you going to trade Him for heaven? You got a million dollars in the bank? God doesn't need your money. And He doesn't need any help saving you. And He doesn't need any help keeping you saved. Jonah, even, even way back as far as Jonah. You know Jonah, the one that didn't want, to, didn't want to tell the people about the Lord and ended up in a whale's belly? That's Jonah. You know what he finally said? He finally said, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is something God does, not something you do. Only the Lord. Nobody. He, you, you can't help Him. You can't, you can't do anything. All you can do is stay lost and keep sinning. That's it. That's all you're capable of. The Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And then, and then the preachers get up and they say, oh, well, you've got to repent of your sin and then you can have what Jesus wants for you. How's that working for you? Did you quit sinning yet? Did you turn to God and away from all your sin and you don't, you're not sinning now? And how could anybody do that when you're yet without strength? It's not what the book says. The book says you can't fix it. You can't change it. You can't make any difference. You are, you are without strength. You say, well, I'm strong. That's not talking about physical strength. Spiritually, you are dead in trespasses and sins until the Lord Jesus Christ makes you alive again. It's called being born again. It's just what being saved means. Oh, I remember. I was about 13 years old. I had just become a teenager when I was in that Pentecostal church where they were screaming and telling me I had to live it. Well, I remember that. You know what my conclusion was? I'm a 13-year-old boy, and I'm normal. Hormones. You know what, you guys, you know what it's like being a, becoming a teenager? And then they, got, they tell you, you got to quit sinning. Every third thought in your, your whole life is a sin. What are you doing? How are you going to fix that? You know what I decided? I, I remember that day that I walked out of there and never went back. I decided, well... I'm going to hell. There's sure no hope for me. So I'm going to just get whatever I can out of this life because that's all it's going to be for me. I know I can't do that. So what's the point? And, and I was right. And... When I, when I became 16, three years later, I went to a Billy Graham crusade in Kansas City, Royal Stadium. Somebody tricked me into going. And then the Lord beat me up and I walked down the aisle. You know what they told me? You got to repent of your sin. Sounded like that same bald-headed guy that used to sling sweat all over the place. Same, same thing. Hey, you pray this prayer and sign this, this card and you are saved. So I prayed the prayer and signed the card. And I walked out of there just as lost as I came in. Ten years go by. And that was not a pretty ten years. I'll tell you that. Age 16 to age 26. I'm, I'm a hotshot insurance executive now. I'm making money. I'm going to positive mental attitude seminars to teach me how I can do it. And they did teach me some good things. They really did. 
But they told me, you ought to go to church. Your whole life will be better if you go to church. So I thought, okay. I hadn't been in church in, since that, oh, that little rock church house in Greenfield, Missouri, where the Pentecostals used to scream and roll on the floor. Last time I was in church. And so I go to this church that was down the street. You know what it was? It was the same thing, only a younger version of that same guy. You got to live it. They had good music, but they still told me what I couldn't do, and I had to do it. And I said, we're not going back there. The next Sunday, I went to a little Baptist church. Somebody that 10 years earlier in a tennis court had given me a tract and invited me to come to that church. Kind of like a pen ministry, only they didn't have any pens. They just had this little track thing. And so my folks told me we were Baptists when I was growing up, but I'd never been to one. I went in there, and that old man that was preaching, now that I think about it, I'm older now than he was then, but what can I tell you? All he wanted to talk about was the blood. The blood this, and the blood, I mean, he must have said blood... 800 times in that sermon seemed like it all he talked about was the blood and I'm thinking what what have I stepped into I didn't understand a word he said all he talked about was the blood that Jesus shed I didn't know what he meant didn't know what he was talking about and so I go home he's he invited me back. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I lied like a dog. I wasn't coming back. Thursday night that week, that old man showed up on my door with this old ratty Bible that was pages were almost ready to fall out of it. It had been used so much. And he asked me, can I, can I show you some things in the Bible? Not one time in my whole life had anybody ever wanted to show me anything in the Bible. And I said, sure, come on in. And that old man, God bless him. He showed me in the book that the whole reason Jesus died was because I could never live it. It was not possible. I wasn't capable. But I already knew that. And I thought, well, here it is. I'm actually right about something. And then he showed me the promise from Jesus himself that if I would put my trust in him, that he would handle it for me all by himself. And then he asked me, like typical Baptist preachers, if I would get down on my knees and pray and ask Jesus to save me. I said, I'll do that. And so I tried. I didn't know what to say. I don't even know what I said. But I know what I said to Jesus from here. Not out loud, just me and him. I said, Lord, I know I can't live it. But I just saw your promise that if I would turn it over to you, you handle it for me. And I put my trust in Jesus. Right there beside that old vinyl couch in Merriam, Kansas. And I've never been the same since that night. Jesus gave me eternal salvation. I'm just getting started. Salvation isn't something you can do. It isn't something you can help with. It's, it's something only Jesus himself can handle for you. Nobody else. Do you believe this? Do you? The word believe is to put in trust with. It's a Greek word, pastuo. It means to put in trust with. It's like when you take your check to the bank and you give them your money and you don't even know them, but you drive off happy because you... Trust them to handle it. That's what it means. When have you done that? 
for your soul. When have you turned your salvation over to Jesus? Just Him. Not your church, not how good you're going to live, not anything else but Jesus. He's God, you know. That's how come He can save everybody, because He's God. He's worth the whole human race and more. When He paid for the sin of one man on that cross, He paid for everybody. And He has included you. This is a whole lot to digest. I know it is. And I know it's past lunchtime, but I don't really care. And you don't look to me like you care much either. It's a lot to, it's a lot to take in. It is. That's why we teach basic Bible truths, five one-hour classes that we'll do for you. And everything you ever wondered about concerning religion, church, Jesus, God, anything, you're going to learn for yourself and see it and know it and understand it from taking those classes. Can I get a witness? Is that true? These are people that have been there and done that, and they know they're going to heaven. They know. Not because of me. Boy, I'm a good teacher. Look, I helped you. I can't help you get to heaven. I can show you who can. I can introduce you. That's what we're about. Let's stand. I'm not going to ask you to come down here and pray and ask Jesus to save you. But I will tell you this. If you do understand that the Bible is true, if you do, because if you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust Jesus because the Bible is the only way we have of knowing about Jesus. But if you know the Bible's true and, you, and you're willing to trust and you know that Jesus paid your debt when he died for you, then you could put your trust in him right now. You could. You say, well, I, I'm still not sure. Well, take the classes. We'll show you how to be sure. Either way, the ball's in your court.